Welcome to the Advanced Tech Podcast. Joining me today is Claire Gallant from Women in Blockchain Vancouver. Welcome, Claire. Hi, thanks. So you have a pretty interesting background. Uh, we were speaking over the last few weeks, and I've gotten to know you a little bit better. I'm really curious about what got you into cryptocurrency and blockchain in, in particular. Mm -hmm. So I came from Montreal and had been pretty involved in women's initiatives. And once I came to Vancouver, um, I came here to learn some tech and to get more involved in that aspect. And it had to do really with finding ways to value femininity and also finding ways to transact. So my background initially was in arts. I grew up in New Brunswick and then headed to Montreal after university. Got more into graphic design and was into painting, sculpture, performance, kind of wacky stuff. So through graphic design and through the media side of things, actually got a job at an adult company. Was working for a big porn company, essentially, on the more technical side, so website side. They were a tech company. But through that, also got exposed to a lot of sexuality, obviously, and started to think a lot about who was the material intended for, how is it shaping our society. And it wasn't what I thought it would be. I was coming from a very feminist background, um, still quite feminist, and it wasn't, you know, when whenever I thought I had something down, it kind of moved. So you could point at certain aspects of it that you thought were problematic and then kind of realize that that wasn't quite it. So I realized that the biggest problem sometimes was actually not so much what was represented, but for who and by who, and that there was a large feminine voice missing in that. So got pretty involved in the feminist porn uh, side of things, discovered that community, also went and collaborated with some people in San Francisco at the Center for Sex and Culture, uh, which is great. And, uh, and yeah, saw that whoever had the control over the medium really got to tell the story. And it's important to have stories from all walks of life, especially including sexuality. It underpins a lot of our common discourses. There's a lot of events lately coming out, so a lot of talk around sexual harassment, etc. And when that's not a barrier, when people deal with sexuality in a mature way, it actually clears out a lot of problems. If we had a more caring, more consensual society around sexuality, I think that a lot of things could emulate that. And so, so this is a big roundabout way to, to talk about that aspect of things, but basically what brought me to learn more tech and how I came to Vancouver. So you're becoming quite an influencer in the blockchain scene here in Vancouver. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into cryptocurrency and blockchain in particular, and really some of the things that drew you to that technology? Mm -hmm. So at the time, I had just moved to Vancouver and had just moved into a house of effective altruists. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But this house had many wonderful people in it, and many of them went to Decentral, which is a great center here, very ground roots, very varied to all around decentralization and a lot around crypto. So that's where I first encountered it. And at that time, I was also interested in the transference of value and how much access to financial services or payments can be empowering. I'd seen that in the sex industry where some biases do get in the way of providing good payments. So, you know, what is high risk compared to what is not is influenced by laws, but also um, 
also by our biases. And those biases can be pretty costly for people who are more at risk. So saw the importance of transfers of payments and access to financial services as more choice and thought that maybe blockchain could be part of that answer. Very cool. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about true value. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. Um, so to me, true value comes closer to, I think we're in a generation that is wanting to bring what makes you money, so what we value financially, closer to what we value in our lives and what sustains life as well. So you see this in you know more responsible investing. Uh, you see this in maybe a rise in credit unions. You see this in just people wanting to put real value and make the things that make us happy and into more healthy communities environment too, into it actually being sustainable in a financial sense. So being able to make a living out of these things too. And we also talked about consent and in particular consensual economics. How mm -hmm. does that tie into all of this for you? Yeah, so the concept of consensual economics for me is about, so consent can only exist under certain circumstances. And I think of Maslow's Pyramid. I think there might be some better models than Maslow's Pyramid. It's kind of an elementary one, but it's a good one to illustrate the point. So, for example, you can't be robbing somebody of one of their basic needs in order to fill something that's higher up on your pyramid. I find that that's a very consensual aspect of it. And also for it to be valuable for both people. Um, so to be a real exchange and a real creation of value through that overlap, that it can't just be valuable for one person and that it's kind of the only option for the other party. When it's a real exchange, you know, one plus one doesn't equal two, one plus one equals three. Yeah, at Advanced Tech Media, we're, we're big believers um, in that one plus one equals three equation. You know, it's so pervasive in everything. It's in the startup culture, in entrepreneurial culture. Mm -hmm. It's really important to think uh, of things that are, it's not just my side and your side, it's what we can achieve together. And mm -hmm. that's the bigger concept. Yeah, yeah. That's how we've built everything that we have around us. We have that capability to bring things from the past and then to build on them. And that's not to be forgotten. And it's not to be forgotten that we can do that for people who are coming ahead of us. Absolutely. Now might be a good time to switch into the time series we were talking a little bit about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so you have an interesting uh, take on that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's very interesting to start looking into time. So it was great. Um, we just had the Plato's Cave Philosophy Salon with the BC Blockchain Forum, which was fantastic. And I think that the concept of Plato's Cave is relevant looking at this too. Plato's Cave talks about the water that we swim in and that we don't see uh, until something else is revealed. And I see that time is like that as well, how we experience the world. Um, I think that we're kind of time machines. Um, so our brains are you know, making projections about the future, uh, is keeping certain memories, creating certain stories about the past, and we get to experience, through our senses, the slice of the present. So that's, that's the water that we swim in, and we're getting to focus a bit more on cognitive science and uh, cognitive psychology lately because of things like VR and uh, AI, and they're making us question what composes us or what we're composed of. And yeah, I think it's relevant to be looking at things from a time perspective, that there is time measurement. Um, so 
clocks and things that are more tools to kind of dissect time into units that are useful for us. There is our perception of time, which might be the most relatable to me or the most approachable. And then also the physics of time. So what is time from a physics perspective? And it's space-time. So the intersection of those three, I think, deserves a lot more attention nowadays. And I'd love to see people get a bit more curious about that. So if people are interested in exploring this a little bit more, where do you suggest they start? Mm -hmm. So I found that there's the Timing Research Forum, which has got a lot of information for research on time. It focuses a bit more on the cognitive psychology side of things. And there's also the International Society for the Study of Time. So those are two master nodes of that research going on. It's always good to have a, a starting place. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that that does is that inspires others and then kind of free explore what interests them, which is kind of interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that we're going to be doing with our roundtables with BC Blockchain because they're so collaborative. I don't know about you, but for mine, I've created a rough skeleton, but I really want to see what the team has to say mm -hmm. uh, in order to create it. You know, I have an idea as a fallback, but I'd like to see what they come up with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same for me. It's almost more about asking the right questions and then seeing what what the branches look like from there. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your Women in Blockchain roundtable. Mm -hmm. which was announced at the, the most recent BC Blockchain event, Plato's Cave. Yeah. Emily de Chatelier. De Chatelier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have a roundtable around women in blockchain goals for the next upcoming year and see what people are interested in creating, see what skill sets that they want to bring to the table. Also see what they're already doing. So these kind of easy little flips into interest in stuff that they're already doing. Something that is a priority is bringing more women into blockchain. But also, I see women in blockchain as being the precursor for just more inclusivity in general. So part of what is revolutionary, part of what is interesting to me about blockchain is the potential to democratize things more and the potential to bring more power to the individual person, regardless of structure, regardless of uh, having that centralized, you know, hand-me-down and permission-based. And, um, and that's a very powerful thing for people who are not usually privy to those clubs. And women in blockchain is kind of a, a gateway drug <laughs> for inclusion. And I want to make this as intersectional as possible and see who wants to take that on from the outside community as well. Interesting. So are you still looking for people to participate in your roundtable? Yes, definitely. Uh, we're looking for people to participate. You can email me. I'm at claire.luna.gallant at gmail.com and uh, also find me through the Women in Blockchain Vancouver meetup group um, online as well. Awesome. So you talked a little bit about decentralization, and we also spoke earlier about redistribution of wealth, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the really interesting things about cryptocurrency and blockchain in particular, and the fact that it doesn't exclude people. So you don't need to be a person that traditionally might have numerous bank accounts and a whole bunch of wealth that you can kind of sink in and play and see what it does. It really helps people that don't have access to currency or, or banks or any kind of financial security to be able to be part of the system. And it also redistributes the wealth, which is quite interesting. Um, so I'd love to hear more about your perspective on that. Mm -hmm. I do think that decentralization 
doesn't mean much if it doesn't mean redistribution. And I think that's included when most people are talking about decentralization. When people are talking about to the moon, <laughs> it's a pretty common slogan and uh, rally for people in crypto. But what does it mean to value? People think of the monetary value when they think of to the moon. But what would it actually mean for us to value decentralization so much that it works with an astounding amount of success? I think that's the more interesting thing. The money side of it is more the finger that's pointing towards the moon, but only the fool looks at that. And on the redistribution side, um, there's some pretty powerful things there as well. How do you see blockchain and cryptocurrency fits that? Mm -hmm. I see that the redistribution, it doesn't just have to be redistribution of uh, money as tokens. I think it can also be very powerful as redistribution of people's voices or how much people's voices matter, for example, in a democratic system, in a voting system, ideas around liquid democracy. I think that those ones are just as important when we think of value. I think it's also been interesting because it's gotten people interested in investing that wouldn't have been interested before. Recently heard, I've heard some people from top government positions in the US talking about how they weren't sure about blockchain at first, but then they saw their kids getting into it. And when they had tried to convince their kids, you know, for the importance of investing, but it hadn't worked. And when it came to blockchain, they just couldn't get their kids off of their accounts. The people who aren't interested in money and the people who are disillusioned by it, those are actually the people that I want to talk to the most about these things because they're passionate. They just see how the system currently doesn't work. And with reason, you know, it's been skewed and there is a need to revamp it. And we need the voices that see the problems in order to build a better system. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see, you know, as money is being redefined in this century or even defined so that like, what is money, right? That's the central concept in, in cryptocurrency that when you really start looking at it, what is money? And there's a mm -hmm. lot of really great resources out there. Um, I think Andreas Antonopoulos has some awesome resources and Peter Todd and there's a number of others that, you know, really talk about what is money. Mm -hmm. And I encourage our listeners to, to look more into that. And yes, absolutely. The system is very broken in, in many ways. The current financial system uh, based on fiat and gold-backed currency, if you can find any, <laughs> <laughs> and, and gold itself. So it's quite interesting to see people that have traditionally opted out and now they're, now they're getting more into the system because they see that there's a better system that's being built. And it's really encouraging to see those people participate. Mm -hmm. I find it comparable to building infrastructure and building systems around green energy, uh, where some of the countries or municipalities that have missed the boat or been robbed of their boat, to be honest, in the past. And, and so they're kind of starting more at zero, whereas we're starting at revamping some of our systems. I think they almost have an advantage to a certain extent, not to minimize, you know, the hard situations in which they are, but they can build from new. We have to convince people to change the systems and often that's the people for whom those systems have succeeded and for you know that it's paid off for them so there's there's an urgency to build something new and better and i think it's a better investment to be doing it in these new ways than to be sticking to the old guns yeah absolutely and that's a really valid point you know people for whom the, the system is working they don't necessarily want things changed because it works for them and Sure, some people might lose out, but they're doing perfectly fine. And I think 
you know, fundamentally as a society, I think that's a question we've got to ask ourselves. Is that something that's really fine? We also talked about things such as universal basic income earlier and how working on merit is something that's kind of interesting and perhaps something that a lot of this generation, especially the crypto generation, seems to be motivated to do. So what are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. When you say merit, I think of studies that look at how uh, gendered or racialized the topic of merit actually ends up being when we when we look at that. So universal basic income is about raising the floor. We currently have the means and the technology and the abundance of resources to include everybody, to make sure that no one falls through the cracks. I see universal basic income as the beginning of that. It's funny because it does still work within our pre-existing notions of how money should come to us. For example, it's not necessarily providing everybody with a house or with uh, with food that's free, but it is giving everybody a wage for, for just living, for just being alive. So saying that food or those basic necessities should be a basic right. Yeah, and like you mentioned before, taking the survival question out of the equation really opens up a lot of interesting avenues. Mm-hmm. Where survival is no longer what we're uh, fighting against. We're no longer just trying to survive, but we can actually begin to thrive and to bring everybody into that conversation. Unless we're all thriving, unless it's about living and not surviving anymore, then we're missing out on a lot of great voices. We're missing out on a lot of potential innovation, and we really do want to build for everyone. I think that it would also change our society. I think it would move our society out of a fear-based society, so something that's reactionary, into a more proactive one. And we're realizing that the more that we can plan that way, the better off we are in the long term, the more sustainable that ends up being. I think that's really important. We were talking earlier about the project in Silicon Valley, the city that they had set up. Yeah, so there's a city that is being subsidized by uh, a couple of venture capitalists that is checking out to see uh, what happens when you have a whole city that's subsidized. And there are you know, other studies across the world, and people think that you know if you just give people money, they will work less, or they won't spend it in the right places. And that's based on some assumptions that are false about people who don't have money at the moment. And that's part of our system where we think that anyone who's in poverty somewhat deserves it. If we think that everyone who has money also deserves it. And that's not the case. People want to make good choices for themselves, for their future. They want most often to educate themselves to be in a better situation sprouting a little bit more of that by allowing them to not fall through the cracks actually serves us all better and they end up making more money I think it's about a year after than they would have otherwise Um, so they end up making more businesses they end up making more money for themselves and they actually work longer as well because they're more likely to be working on stuff that they want to be working on exactly exactly and I think That might be an interesting project to see started here in Vancouver. We definitely have a lot of challenges here. I think worldwide, people come here, and it's a beautiful city. Mm -hmm. uh, But people are absolutely horrified when they go down to the the downtown east side and just see the the level of destruction and decay and just hardship that people are experiencing down there. And I think it's a complicated issue. I mean, it's been an issue for many decades, but 
something along the lines of universal basic income and something where society is is not cruelty-based anymore would be really interesting to explore. Mm -hmm. There's a project out east for, well, against homelessness. It's called Housing First, and it's been quite a success. And it went against our assumptions that if you just give somebody a home, that they'll fall back onto the street somehow. But it turns out that all the rest comes together much more easily once you actually have a home base, which makes sense. If you were suddenly told tonight that you no longer have a place to live, imagine how difficult everything else would be to sustain. So it makes sense once you're in it, uh, but because of some of our assumptions, it's it's hard to imagine. There's a project called GiveWell, and there's also Give Directly, which is blockchain-based, actually. And um, they're also quite supported by, they're vetted for by the effective altruists, and they end up giving money directly at a 90% uh, rate to uh, extremely poor communities. So you can be assured that, you know, that much money actually goes towards these people. And in effect, it makes a universal basic income. And there's been great development and improvement in these people's lives from that. Awesome. So now might be a great time to talk a little bit more about effective altruism uh, as a concept. Mm -hmm. So effective altruism is an organization that uh, was started, I believe, around uh, Cambridge and Harvard, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's a worldwide organization, and they focus on kind of defining and quantifying more what is good and concepts where they look at honoring all life in that the wellness of one creature should be no more or lesser than the wellness of other creatures. So they do focus quite a bit on animal wellness or animal rights. And they also look at uh, assessing charities and seeing which ones are the most efficient at giving out the money and uh, to making sure that the results are quantifiable and that it's actually working to do what it says it does. So some transparency that way. Another field that effective altruism looks at is making sure that AI development is beneficial to us. Um, so this is something that might have a huge effect on us. And for the amount of resources and research that's being put into it and how many people are actually working on the problems is disproportionate at this time. So they advocate for big impact with minimal resources and do the research behind that to quantify good. I think it's really important as we're moving into a data-driven world that, you know, we can define some of these concepts now, like what is good, and you can measure impacts on society in various different forms. Uh, does this action directly change a person's outlook? Does it directly change their financial circumstances? There's so many different applications that we can look at, and oftentimes it's the interesting correlations you wouldn't think exist are the ones that are the most compelling. Mm -hmm. So we've been very effective at growing or we've been very effective at getting change to happen in terms of businesses and the corporate world. So we have these big organizations that have changed the world, but has it always been for the better? Sometimes, but not always. But they're very data-driven. They're very metric-driven. They quantify. So we have the means to do these things. It's just that we have been focused on winning the game of money as opposed to winning the game of life and having money follow that. So when I think of true value, I think of those two concepts allying a lot more. I think of the Grameen Bank by Mohammed Yunus, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007, I believe. 
uh, they started with small change with microloans and quickly realized, by the way, that they were having the biggest effect when they distributed them to women in the community um, because the women tended to, because of the way that they were socialized, not so much you know anything biologically ingrained, they tended to distribute that wealth to their families, to the community. They wanted to lift all boats with their rising tides and innovated the concept of social business uh, where you don't have to be a charity that makes no money, but you also don't have to be a corporation that's only by its structure motivated by making money. Um, there can be more than one measure of success. It doesn't have to be only money. And I think that it'd be interesting to look at some parallels for that for countries and GDPs, for example. There should be more metrics that we really take into account. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. Uh, there's the, I think Marie and I were talking about this, the fact that women's contribution in a traditional style of, of household where the women take care of the, of the kids and the household, that's not factored in at all to the, the GDP of the country. And perhaps it should be. Yeah, definitely. And not just how women are uh, nurturers or traditionally caretakers, but also volunteers. So the nonprofit sector is run, I think, 75% by women. Um, so women do, well, you know, specifically women, but it really can be anyone who holds these types of values. People can be contributing in ways that grow society. It's just that they haven't necessarily been rewarded by tokens. It hasn't been tokenized value. I think that's something that we can do. I think that's something that would be very worth it to start looking at how blockchain technologies can tokenize value for nonprofits. Maybe in effect making them more into social businesses for the ones who want to, offering that as a possible model. And so making it possible for them to fund themselves a bit more and to further their impact. Uh, so having a growth model for nonprofits which is a hard thing to do nowadays. A lot of nonprofits are doing fantastic things, but struggle with how to get more funding. Exactly. Or they're limited by the fact that it's not for profit. And so companies or big ventures that might be interested in contributing otherwise don't necessarily contribute as much and don't see the impact that they could potentially have if they were to give much more money in mm -hmm. a, a growth capacity versus just a, a charity capacity. Yeah, and in the same way, I think that more businesses could head more towards the social business side of things. I think it's becoming an expectation out of its customers, consumers, that they become more socially inclined. Uh, you look at the advertising, you look at you know how businesses are branding, them, branding themselves, um, and it's definitely shifting towards, hey, are you having an impact in the community? Are you doing things you know globally? Where are you contributing? I want to know that you know, my money is also helping not just uh, fattening a duck <laughs> at the top of the pyramid. So, And again, in terms of the employees and how they have a say within their organization, do you think that these things are becoming less authoritarian? They're becoming more democratized and equal within the organizations? I do think that that's a good idea, running on true merit and also running on the validity of an idea and not so much who it's coming from. I think that's really important. And I think good organizations, they tend to have a number of things in common. They tend to foster an inclusive mandate. They tend to be flat organizations and they tend to value contribution of the individual. So it's not necessarily 
hey, my line manager said this is a great idea, so this is what we're going to do, and let's do more of that. Uh, but somebody who perhaps sees a better way of doing things has the confidence that they can approach their manager or approach their team member and have a conversation about innovating. I think that is such a healthy way of growing business and acting in business because it opens you up to be able to change and it changes that conversation from the C-suite people setting the tone to all of a sudden it's the people that work in the field setting the tone and that's pretty compelling. Mm -hmm. All of that, though, takes access to information and that's been a shift that we've felt with the internet. Um, so we've gotten so much more access to information. It's, you no longer have to go and see the ivory tower in order to get some of that information, although definitely more efforts can be done that way too. Or you no longer have to you know, uh, cater to the expert who only wants to talk to people who look exactly like them, or you can find your information and it empowers you already. And with that information, you can do things that you could never do 50 years ago. I heard this tidbit where the average person nowadays has more information than the president of the United States used to have a hundred years ago. So we are very empowered by information. It's about time that we were able to do something with it. That brings up a lot of points in that we're almost over inundated with information as a society. And a lot of people, they tend to apply filters and they tend to only go to the sources that they trust and don't explore because they find it overwhelming. Um, and they don't necessarily know like who to trust and what sources to trust. With more information and more freedom comes a, a degree of ownership of being proactive in your information and not taking a, a passive view of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's more media literacy that's needed. I think that'd be something interesting to uh, offer in our educational system. Also bring you know adults up to speed with it too, because so much is based on that information. And so you don't want to build on false information. Yeah, that's really important. And especially I know that I experience this all the time in cryptocurrency. There's so much FUD and FOMO, the fear of missing out and fear, uncertainty and doubt. And a lot of time that's just put out there because somebody wants to benefit from affecting the market. It's interesting to see how that's had a wider impact to society. People now, instead of just reacting, they tend to question a little bit more and they tend to empower themselves a little bit more. And I think that's going in a really healthy direction. It's got to start somewhere, but at least it's starting. Mm -hmm. we, can't, um, we can't be quite so reactive and it's okay to take a pause. So it's okay to say, really? After someone's made a really dramatic claim and to go and check for yourself. And then what you can do after that is say, oh, hey, yeah, that's true. And I was wrong or that's not true at all. And this is actually what I found. And based on people's reactions and decide whether or not maybe they're a worthy source for the next time, if they're willing to listen and want to further engage and if they have something to counter that again then that's great news that's that's a real conversation i really enjoyed the debates because it offered that same type of same type of mentality and that same type of method where you know really do look at both sides of the issue in fact there are more than two sides to every single issue but the more rounded you can be the more you can see that things aren't always straight cut they have characteristics and sometimes those characteristics are negative and sometimes they're positives depending on the context in which you apply them so those types of skills and knowing that that's how we all fit in together as well and i got interested in that definition of what is good and what is 
alternatively maybe evil <laughs> um which sounds like a big super villain thing to say but hey we all can deal with that that's something that we we conceptualize about i found that uh, most people don't want to hurt other people all that's taken to hurt someone or a, a group of people is to not pay attention uh, to decide to prioritize something else and I think that's how more of the damage has been done. It's been to just decide to look away. And the more information and the more face-to-face uh, -face interaction that we have, um, whether it's through video in real time, seeing what's going on in another, another place, I think that does foster more empathy and maybe allows us to, to connect a bit more and to see that other people's problems are also our problems. Absolutely. One of the things you speak about and is a, a passion of yours is gender dynamics. I'd love to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. So we've actually got a speaker series at Unbounce called Gender Dynamics, suggested donation of $10. Uh, we just had the first one, which was on uh, vulnerability and empathy uh, with John and Michael Bean. They led a really great workshop and presentation on this empathy and vulnerability. They've led it a couple times really focusing on allowing to put yourself on the edge of something that you're comfortable with. So during the series, they were looking at people letting go of gender roles that don't work for them. Gender is part of our identity. Um, we all get to decide exactly what that means to us. We've had a certain past. We've had a certain tradition that's told us how we should and should not act. We're all a lot more diverse than that. Sometimes that works for us, sometimes it doesn't. So looking at those rules, finding the ones that don't work for you, adding and validating the dimension in that. Because at first you can say, you know, uh, boys are strong, girls are soft. But once you start looking at how that affects you or what's expected of you in your life, then it becomes a lot more colorful and becomes a lot more intertwined. So it was nice to appreciate how diverse that was uh, in application and complex uh, but also saying, hey, if it doesn't work for me right now, I don't have to do that. So that was the first speaker series. Uh, we also have one on calling culture, and that one is for a more compassionate society. We have a panel looking at how the Me Too movement can be more inclusive, kind of looking at things that have been put on the fringe that should be more at the forefront and that can contribute more to the conversation in the future. And we also have one on how to be an ally. Uh, no one was turned away. Excellent. That's such an important initiative. And I think we saw last year with the women's movements and this year as well, you're starting to see the, the Me Too movement and then all of the questions that society is starting to ask. I think that's the most interesting part is that it's spurring on the question about, you know, why do we do things this way? And is this something we want to continue doing? Sometimes it's not confronting people, but it's really inviting them to question where they stand on things and why they stand on things a certain way. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really cool what you're doing. Thanks. Yeah, it's certainly great to connect with people who are also interested in this. So even just acting somewhat as a connector, um, you know, using it as an excuse to just go out and see what else is going on and making sure that projects that would strengthen each other are aware of each other. That's very satisfying, and I'm very fortunate to be in that position. Awesome. And I think it's important to highlight that, to draw people in and include them. Suggesting a donation and being inclusive is excellent because it brings more voices to the table. 
Mm-hmm. The donations are going straight to the speakers too. So that was um, that's a bit of a belief on my side. So we have so many volunteer initiatives. We have so many people doing great work. It's really important to have those efforts compensated and so it does go straight to them if there's a bit extra it goes towards doing these same types of events in the future that's really important and i think one of the things that keeps people away from initiatives is that and and just initiatives that have a volunteer aspect they think well how am i going to keep a roof over my head how is this going to contribute to that and people oftentimes struggle when it comes to quote-unquote volunteer work because they they only have a certain amount of time in the day and they want to make an impact. They have the best intentions of making an impact, but they feel that it will hurt them in a way. So I think it's great that you're monetizing that. And I, I encourage other organizations to start doing that, uh, having some kind of volunteer donation or even just more people reaching out to get involved. That's another place it can start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned time, right? So we all only have a certain amount of time. It's one of the most valuable things that we actually do have when it comes down to it. I heard this great quote where theoretically we can do anything. The biggest barriers to it or the biggest factors to it are enough time, enough minds, and enough money. So I do find that money is the most flexible of those. The more you look into what is money, the more you see that. And also you do see that in blockchain. I think that's a wonderful thing. The more minds that can be affected by technology, and it has been. Um, so the more minds we can say that are computers are minds in many way. In a very simple way, you could almost say that the wheel is a mind <laughs> because you get to you know, you get to transport things. It also represents bodies and you know effort. Um, and then you have you have time, which is the least flexible aspect of that. So it's very respectable for people to you know say, oh, I don't have the time. That's real. It's absolutely real. That's something of prioritization and. You know, who are you to say that they shouldn't be prioritizing? But when, when money can buy time, then we ought to look at that. And currently, that's how our system works. Yeah, that's really important. And I, I think people don't often put the value on time that they should. They try to fit everything in and, you know, things get dropped. Uh, and they really tend to only focus on the things that they're being directly paid for with money. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really limiting thing. And I hope as a society, we'll start moving more toward different ways of thinking about that and a different style of democracy even, where we incorporate value more into the equation. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also a privilege to even be able to volunteer because there's a lot of people working two jobs to make ends meet, especially in the city. It's not uh, to be taken for granted. So, you know, you've got people with families, you've got people who who are caretaking. Uh, You look at, in general, the time that uh, women spend towards caretaking, which is unpaid labor, compared to how much time they spend doing paid work, and then let alone that that paid work usually pays less, and that the occupations themselves are valued less. And it starts to make a difference. Um, You do have to keep a roof over your head. That was an interesting uh, stat that I found where not only are women making less in the same jobs, but also when you look at the history of these jobs and how they're compensated. For example, being a computer programmer at first was largely occupied by women. So they were computers. And then when uh, it became a trendy job for men, Um, it started paying better. So that's when you saw the salaries rise. That's when you saw that club form. Just the fact that a job is considered masculine or considered feminine 
not necessarily what they do at that job or how much value it actually brings to society. It will be valued more if it's considered masculine. So I think that that's part of what we need to change to look at this value in a dichotomous way is to value femininity more. I think that's really important. We've definitely been a patriarchal society for many years. And I think, you know, it's provided structure, it's provided safety. And those are often the things that are, you know, we're doing this because we want to keep you safe. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's a double-edged sword for sure. But I think there's a lot of inherent value in accepting the feminine. You know, if we look at societies that value the feminine uh, more so than the masculine, we can learn a lot from those societies. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's also safe from what, right? If it's safe from sexual assault outside of the private sphere. Well, first of all, way more happens inside of the private sphere than outside. Uh, We have this notion that stranger danger. When you look at the stats, that's not where most of the abuse happens. Most of the abuse happens from people who are trusted figures of authority. And so there's a lot of myths in that. We ought to start valuing everyone who is building society instead of having only the ones at the top reap the benefits. Yeah, that's a really valid point. So I wanted to ask you, from the perspective of VC Blockchain, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to for the next year? And what are some of your plans within the organization? Mm -hmm. So I'm quite excited about the Masternode book that Marie is starting. So I know that she was talking to you about that earlier. So that's quite interesting to me. I am looking at those structures for decentralized leadership. I was listening to you guys' podcast the other time, which is great, by the way. (laughs) And yeah, we do revert back to old systems of leadership. And it is something to relearn it and to not kick back into what we think power is. We really are redefining power. So I'm excited to contribute to that, looking to make a bit more that's shareable and create more platforms that people can also empower themselves in. Excellent. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Mm-hmm. Um, my Twitter handle is at LauraGlass64. My name is Claire Gallant, but when I was more in the adult industry, that's what I did projects on. There's also the meetup group, so Women in Blockchain Vancouver. I can reach out to uh, me or Rama on there. She is the co-founder. And you can also reach out to me on Facebook. And uh, yeah. And then finally, do you have any requests for our listeners? Uh, Yeah, I'd say start thinking about the water that you live in. There's a lot of things that that we assume. There's a lot more interesting things. Just because things are the way that they are currently doesn't mean that they will always be that way. So I'd say dare to dream in the absolute and then go backwards from there. So reverse engineer. Think about what would be the best way for us to all go forward. There's so much technology available nowadays. If you can think of it, it's usually been tried at least before, but never, and it continues to, to be more and more this way, never with this amount of technology available, never with this amount of knowledge, never with this amount of resources, and I'd say never with this amount of people who feel such a sense of urgency. So, yeah, it's now or never. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Claire. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you.
Thank you.